The scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a, as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Well, good morning. We are um, continuing our sermon series called Practical Transformation. And the point of this uh, sermon series is to do something really specific. What we're doing is we're walking through our liturgy, kind of every different element of our service, and we're kind of singling them out and we're doing a deep dive on each. And the reason we're doing this is uh, I think it's easy for us uh, as a people to come to church um, especially some of you that have been at Hope Chapel for a long time, to come and to walk through the different elements and forget the way in which the Lord is actually using them to shape us and mold us and transform us in His image uh, individually, but also corporately as a people. And so as we kind of walk through uh, each of these elements, we've learned how they transform our hearts, uh, both in the service, but also our launching pad for our everyday lives. So the first week we looked at the call to worship and God's sovereignty and power. And then the next week, again, Todd reminded us of the confession sequence and how it mirrors a life of repentance. And then flowing out of that idea, we talked about the passing of the peace and how all of us, because Christ has made peace with us, we can have peace with one another. This week, we're going to look at um, the prayers of the people. And we're going to see that the prayers of the people are, are an integral part of our worship service. Because we are, as God's people together here at Hope, called to align our hearts and wills with God's heart and will. And when we pray together, this is exactly what we're doing, is we're aligning our hearts and wills with His. Um, last week, I um, watched a movie, and it was called um, Pride and Prejudice, and it was electric. <laughs> I had never seen it before. Um, and I bawled my eyes out, uh, like half the movie. Uh, I think like, you know, when I was growing up, my, my sister and my mom would watch the, the, those period piece movies. And um, I, I'm a little dense. And so the, uh, like the language and stuff, I couldn't figure out. And it just was above me, I think. Um, but I'm married to Andrea, and um, that's my wife. And if you're married to Andrea, you have to watch period pieces. So we did, and it was, as I said, life-changing. And as many of you guys know uh, from my illustrations up here in, in our summer film series, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a big movie buff. Like, I, I really do love movies and, and films, and um, it actually wasn't always that way. Well, 
It was kind of that way. I did watch Star Wars every single day coming home as a middle schooler. I literally just like, we would rinse and repeat A New Hope on Monday, Empire Strikes Back on Tuesday, Return of the Jedi on Wednesday, and then we would start it over again. Like every single day, me and my sister. I actually saw Lord of the Rings at midnight as a 12-year-old with my college brother and his friends. It was, uh, yeah, Fellowship of the Ring at midnight. I was really impressed with myself as a 12-year-old there. Um, but no, it actually wasn't until I married Andrea that I had more of a, uh, I, what's the best way to put it, appreciation for film. Uh, my wife has loved the Oscars since Titanic came out, um, and uh, she, all 11 Oscars it was up for, I think, she pulled for each and every one. She also saw it as a middle schooler in theaters, way too young, um, and yet her parents let her... Um, she also has an Oscar speech that she practices every year. Uh, you should ask her to do it. Uh, she does it in the mirror. But it's because I've been married to her that my appreciation for film actually has grown. And we try to watch every Oscar movie. Um, we watch the Oscars, all, all those things. But it was, it's because of my relationship to her that I even have that. And actually, um, a lot of things... Uh, uh, I would say my appreciation for uh, quality food, my food palate has gotten better because she has a much higher understanding of, and appreciation of food. And because I've been married to her, that has gone up. I love my dog, Monty, only slightly less than my children um, because Andrea has a passionate love for her dogs. Um, my musical tastes have become both more poppy and also more refined the longer we've been together to mirror her own. You see, Andrea and I, have, uh, we've only been together for uh, a little over 10 years, but through those 10 years, our hearts and our wills have slowly begun to align themselves together more and more the longer we've been together. Here's why I tell you this. Much of the journey of being a Christian is learning to align our own hearts and our own wills with God's heart and will. And like my relationship with Andrea, we do this by spending time with him, getting to know him, making our relationship with him a daily part of our life. And as the minutes and days and years and decades go on, we, we begin to see, or the hope of sanctification is that our, our hearts and wills begin to align with his. His hope for the world becomes our hope. His love for people becomes our love for people. His desire for the world becomes our desires. And this is done in plenty of ways in the robust life that is Christianity. Um, but one of the primary ways that this is done is through a life of prayer. It's in prayer and speaking to God, spending time with Him, sitting in His presence, communing with Him, listening to Him speak to us, coming to worship, praying collectively together, that God transforms us more in him is in his image, yes, but also uh, in line with his heart. And this is why we do the prayers of the people every single week. Each week, uh, the people of God are brought together by someone who intercedes on our behalf to the God of the universe. And that person prays on behalf of us for the city, for the world, and the church body here at Hope. And we don't do this just to check a box off. We, we don't do it just to say that we do it and just say... Um, this idea of, we, we, yeah, we pray. No, we do this because we believe that our God cares deeply about the whole scope of the world. 
And if that is where his heart is, we want to align our hearts with his. In some ways, there, there may not be another element in the service that is used as much to our, align our heart to God's heart as the prayers of the people for that reason. But, I don't know if you're like me, but prayer is really hard for me. Sometimes sitting through the prayers of the people is hard for me. And this is not because of our people who lead our prayers, because every single one of them probably has a better understanding of prayer and of God's heart than I maybe ever will. No, it's hard because I think deep down, as I've looked at my heart this week, I don't know or believe that prayer actually does anything, if I'm honest. I know it intellectually, and I know it theologically, and I know it spiritually, but on my heart level, do I believe it? I think that's my issue. It's a lack of trust and faith. And yet the scriptures show us time and time again that a life of prayer is exactly what we are called to. That he does care. That he, that he does listen. That he does transform us as we pray and are brought into his presence. But, but perhaps more than any of that, there's a promise inherent to the ability that we have to pray. And that promise is this, that God is at work in the world. That our prayers interceding for the broken places in our hearts, in our city, and in our world uh, are actually helping us to align our heart with a God who is at work right now. Who wants to redeem and restore that brokenness. And wants to use us to partner with Him in that restoration. This is why the prayers of the people are so important. And this is what this passage in 1 Timothy is showing us. In these seven or so verses, Paul really shows us what a life of prayer, individually and corporately, what it should look like, but also how it shapes us and reminds us of God's heart. And so this week, uh, this morning, we're going to look at three ways that the prayers of the people unite us in this idea. First, the prayers of the people unite us under a common posture. The prayers of the people unite us under a common purpose. And finally, the prayers of the people unite us under a common person. So a posture, a purpose, and a person. So first, uh, a posture. Though we are specifically talking about uh, the prayers of the people, part of our liturgy, we're going to be talking about prayer itself. And that's what I love, and I kind of mentioned this at the beginning, that's what I love about our service in general, is that though these are things that, uh, our liturgy are things that we come together and do together, they're supposed to be a picture of what our daily life is. But not even just a picture of it. They're, they're a launching pad. So the idea that we have prayer all throughout our service is supposed to be emblematic and a launching pad for us to live a life of prayer in our daily lives. And these first few verses of 1 Timothy really help us to see this kind of this life. Uh, first one says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, uh, many commentators highlight the fact that there's four different types of prayer mentioned here. Supplications, intercessions, thanksgiving, and then a general praying. And it's true that there are different types and ways to pray according to the context and need. Uh, for instance, the prayers of the people are prayers of intercession. Um, and then, like uh, Brett mentioned earlier, that we have a time to pray before the word. We have a time to pray for confession. Things like that. But in this context of 1 Timothy... It's probably not helpful to overemphasize the differences in prayer that Paul is getting at here. 
What Paul's point is not to de- define or separate the kinds of prayers out we should engage in, but he wants to emphasize what our posture in prayer generally is supposed to be and what it's called to be. And this is found in the second half of that first verse. He says this, these prayers are to be made for all people. All people. So who does all people refer to? In verse 2, he says this, that we pray for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is interesting. And there, there's precedent in the Old Testament and the New that we pray for the government and those in authority, and that's true. And then Paul seems to juxtapose that uh, with praying for ourselves as well. So what do, what do we do with that? And the people that Paul was writing to, the early church and Timothy, were, were definitely not in places of power. So they would have been persecuted and really powerless in a lot of contexts and situations. But Paul encourages them to pray for the authority, the, even those that would persecute them. And then he encourages them to pray to lead a peaceful and quiet, godly life. And I think that Paul is, is doing something super specific here. He's reminding us that our posture in prayer is from people all the way in authority, all the way down to ourselves. He's reminding us our posture is for the whole scope of humanity. This is what this tells me. And this might sound a little weird at first, but we'll get there. It tells me that our posture in prayer is to be one of expectation. If we're instructed to pray for those in authority all the way down to ourselves, the underlying thrust of that idea is that God actually cares about all of it. And that he's actually at work in all of it. His heart is for the whole scope of creation. Thus, we must pray expectantly that he is working in all of it. So I guess my question is, is that our posture? Do we believe that? And I, I mentioned the, the lack of faith piece earlier for me. Um, but I, I've talked to a couple people this week, and funny enough, this is like, uh, not the prayers of the people specifically, but this might be the fourth or fifth time I've preached on prayer since I've been here in the past four years. Um, and of all of us on staff in the preaching team, um, I feel the most inadequate to preach on this subject. Um, I, I struggle with a daily prayer life. Not, not that I don't do it, but that I actually do it in such a way that I believe and I expect the power of God through the Holy Spirit to move in and through this world. I struggle with that idea. And yet what's so funny is over the past four years here, and maybe some of the most moved I've ever been in this service is during the prayers of the people. When that part of the service comes, there's nothing, think about this, there's nothing any of us can do. I mean, other than leave the room, right? You could leave. Um, but other than that, you have to listen, receive, and join in with the intercessor leading the prayers they pray. And, and just think about where your posture is in that moment, right? The leader is behind the pulpit, uh, and for five or seven minutes, each of us are praying for the city, the church, and the world. 
All of God's people united together, led by someone with the hope and expectation that God's at work. How cool is that idea? That even if we struggle in our daily personal prayer life, we know that we can come here and be led by someone interceding for those things, aligning us corporately with God's own heart. But I think what's been a corrective for me this week is, is if I can't, if I struggle to change my heart, I can change my posture and that idea of being open and willing to the idea that God is at work and moving and expect him to do it. Because if it isn't right, we'll miss it. If it's distrustful, we may still pray, but we miss his heart. If it's skeptical, we may pray, but we may miss his heart. If it's uh, if we think that prayer is a waste of time, we may have pray, but we may miss his heart. If our posture is that we aren't good enough or worthy enough to pray, we're going to miss his heart. I think um, one of the best descriptors of this expectant prayer in the whole Bible can be found in Matthew 7. Listen to these words from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. They're up there too. It says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a servant? If you then, who are evil, know how to, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. You see the expectation in Jesus' words? He knows his Father will work and does move in the world. And this is not a prosperity gospel passage. This, this passage is not one that focuses on what we can get from God if we just ask. Not one that promises blessings and wealth and a good life if we pray to God. This passage shows us the posture that we are to embody of humility, of openness, of asking, of trust, honor, but overall expectation that God is at work. So this has a myriad of applications for us. It means we can pray for those in authority that we disagree with, even strongly disagree with, that they would, their hearts would be changed more in line with God's heart and will. This means we can pray for those in authority that are abusing their power and causing great harm, that God will change their hearts and align them according to his. This means that we can pray for non-Christians in the hope that they come to know Jesus. We can pray for those hurt by natural disasters or those suffering under poverty, injustice, and oppression. We can pray for one another in our emotional, physical, and spiritual pain. We can even pray for those that have hurt us. But we can do it all with the expectation that we have a God who is at work in the world. That is why we pray. And it brings me to my second point. So we must align our hearts to God's heart, and we do this through praying together, which unites us under a common posture. And now we're going to see uh, that it unites us under a common purpose. So what is the purpose of our praying life? We've seen the, our posture to have faith and trust and the expectation that God hears us and he's at work. But what is the purpose of praying for all the people? Well, verses 3 and 4 give us a good answer, and rather plainly, too. It says this, this is good. 
And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The purpose of our prayer is that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It goes as far as saying that God desires for all people to be saved. So before we get uh, fully into the purpose piece, let's camp out there for a second. Is Paul intimating uh, a a kind of universalism here through the cross of Jesus? And many universalists actually use this uh, this verse specifically to say that the cross of Jesus Christ is effective to save all people, regardless of what they say and do or believe. And I I would go as far to say that this is a compelling sentiment for all of us, right? Um, Wouldn't it be nice if that were the case? But the Bible and the trajectory of the redemptive story shows us something different. God has always, throughout Scripture, uh, claimed and chosen a people to be his own. He did it with Israel in the Old Testament, and he does it today with all people who profess faith in him. So what do we see, do with this verse that seems to contradict this idea? Well, there is a sense that God does desire for all people to be saved. We are all his image bearers, part of his creation that he called good. And there's a sense that God loves the entire world for that reason. And actually, because of that, he is redeeming and restoring this place. So much so that one day when he returns, he'll restore all of it in the new heavens and the new earth. But our sin is separates us from God. And that separation is impossible for us to overcome on our own. And as Christians, we believe that it is only through the cross of Jesus Christ that the power of sin was broken and that we are forgiven. But we don't believe that that forgiveness is for everyone, but only for those that profess faith in him. In this way, the cross of Jesus Christ was sufficient for the whole world and all of humanity in his desire for them to be saved, but it is efficient for only those who profess faith in him. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's spelling out the purpose of our prayer. And that desire is that they all be saved. So we discussed what that doesn't mean. What does it mean, though? And as I was thinking about applications of this idea that God desires for all to be saved, um, three kind of sub-points came to my mind as I thought about it. And I thought it might be helpful for us as we thought through application. First, uh, the purpose of our prayer is restoration. The purpose, or sorry, the purpose of our prayer is for salvation, restoration, and transformation. So first, salvation. The power of the cross, as we just said, sufficient for all, but only efficient for those who profess faith in, in him. Uh, this is so important for us to not forget. That the salvation of people through the cross of Jesus Christ has to be a primary thrust of our prayer life. The gospel is good news, right? And one thing that I love about Hope Chapel is that we believe that the calling of the gospel is not just salvation by faith, uh, by grace through faith. We believe that the gospel has social and cultural ramifications. You are amazing at loving, advocating for, and crying out against social and cultural injustices and harm. But I worry sometimes that we miss this idea of salvation at times. And to miss it would be to miss out on a primary outworking of the gospel, that it is our calling to pray for the salvation of non-Christians to come into our fold. To boldly pray that those that are separated 
from the people of God would know what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of their sins. This is a primary outworking of our prayer life, is to pray for non-Christians to come to faith in Jesus Christ. What would it look like for us to rediscover and re-engage with that calling to pray for God to move mightily in this city, to bring more people into his family? But it's not just for salvation. It's also the purpose is for restoration. And you guys really do understand and embody this piece well. And that idea that, that Christ's death and through the power of the Holy Spirit and his kingdom being here now is renewing and restoring this earth. And because of this, our prayer life must look like advocating for social and cultural reform and not just spiritual. Salvation uh, and restoration, though, if you think about it, are uniquely connected. You can't have one without the other. And it's not, uh, they're not at odds with each other either. Actually, the idea that we pray for salvation directly flows into the idea that we pray for restoration in all places. Here's this quote by uh, Sam Wells. He says this, There's a sense in which the Son who pleads with the Father on our behalf is always the Jesus we see on the cross. Because every petition is, on closer scrutiny, a plea for salvation. For safety, for healing, for reconciliation, for communion, for blessing, for all the things won on the cross. You see, when we pray for restoration, we're praying for restoration because of the salvation that Jesus Christ won on the cross. Those two are uniquely connected. This means we do pray for legislature to be passed or denied that we believe is unbiblical. This means we do pray for social and cultural change for the sake of the kingdom. And we do pray and cry out for the oppressed and the marginalized. Because all of those places need the salvation of Jesus Christ. And finally, the, the purpose of prayer and the salvation of all people is for transformation. And we do believe that prayer transforms the world. Um, but I want to think about it in this aspect first. That it transforms us. When we pray for the city and the world and the church, our hearts are being transformed. Here's why. It takes us out of our own head. It takes us out of our own self. This is perhaps where kind of our thesis today plays the most. God's heart is for renewal. It is for restoration. It is for salvation. But because it is, it transforms our hearts more in line with his. It transforms us to want to see his kingdom come. To see his grace be proclaimed throughout the city. When we pray, there's a great underlying purpose that God is transforming. Not just the world, but our hearts too. And man, there's something so powerful about that. As we're brought out of ourselves, we realize that God is actually working in us. So, we've seen that we must align our hearts with the heart of God. We do this through prayer. The prayers of the people under a common posture, a common purpose. And finally, we're going to see under a common person. Uh, and at the end of these verses, talking about prayer, there's this beautiful image of what it means to be united to Christ and how Christ is united to God and the Trinity. And this statement was most likely a liturgical statement uh, or a statement of faith that was kind of passed around the early church at this time. And it says this, For there is one God... 
And there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I love that uh, Paul decided to put his statement of faith here right after he instructs us to pray and pray for all people because he reminds us why we pray. And the one thing that unites us all together for a specific purpose, which is to glorify the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we miss him, we miss the whole thing. Our prayers for salvation of all and for creation the purpose of it, the posture of it is directly, all of it tied to the cross of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he gave for all of us and for the whole world. Paul says this is why he teaches and preaches. This is why he was an apostle, is for that fact. And it's the fact, that fact is what unites us here this morning, right? What does this have to do with the prayer of the people? Well, in a sense, everything. I, I want you guys to picture something. And next week, when we do prayers, people are even thinking about today when we did it. Um, imagine all of us, right? Hope Chapel being here on this hand. And then imagine the inner, beautiful inner workings of the Trinity here on this hand, okay? And when we come to God in prayer, specifically the prayers of the people, imagine us like this. And then imagine the intercessor, not to put pressure on you guys, uh, being right there in between our two hands, interceding on behalf of us and the city and the world. How cool is that idea? That we are brought near to the heart of God himself when we come before him in prayer. We are united as God's people, and God himself is united in the Trinity. And together, we are communing and engaging and interacting in relationship. In the same way that that person intercedes for us, Jesus uh, hears our prayers and intercedes on our behalf to God in the inner workings of the Trinity. And as many of you know and have seen throughout the series, is that um, I really am passionate about this idea of liturgical formation. Well, I really believe that the power of what we do on Sunday mornings, that Christ uses them to transform us and shape us and then send us out. But I think uh, one thing that this series has taught me more than anything is that this service doesn't just transform us and shape us in the image of God, though it does, and it doesn't just enable us to be more like Christ in the world, though it definitely does. I think the, the big thing I've learned in this series is that the liturgy that we do every week, every element of our service, unites us together in this beautiful way. As we walk through the service, God unites us to one another under the banner of Jesus Christ. And that is a gift to us. And there may be no elements that unite us under Jesus, maybe save communion, like the prayers of the people. And this passage shows us why. As we pray to him, he directly intercedes to God on our behalf as our mediator. Here's my encouragement for us in weeks and months and years to come. It's twofold. One, that as we are united together under the prayers of the people for the sake of the city, the church, and the world, that we allow ourselves 
to be brought together even closer to one another. There's nothing that unites a people together more than a common mission. And our common mission is for the kingdom of Jesus Christ to come more here. And the prayers of the people will bring us together to do that. But the second thing that I want us to be reminded of in in the months and weeks and years to come is to never lose sight of Jesus Christ when we do it. Who unites us together, who wants to hear our prayers, who longs for us, and who paid the sacrifice for us so that we may be saved and for his kingdom to come. Let us never lose sight of the king for the sake of the kingdom, ever. Let us be about the kingdom, united under the king instead. As we move towards the king who's moving towards us, let our hearts and minds and wills be aligned to God's own heart and will. Um, this is ridiculous, and it happens all the time, but... Um, Dre and I are matching this morning. Um, <laughs> did not plan it. Um, and uh, red top, jeans on. Um, but have you ever seen those couples that uh, have been together for like 40 or 50 years and they kind of look similar? You know? They talk similar, they act similar, but like, I, I don't know if they actually look similar in the face, but maybe their facial expressions are so united to one another that they kind of look the same. I kind of want that for Andrea and I because she's way prettier than me. So, like, maybe I can, like, you know, get that at some point. Um, But I do hope that one day we're old and gray um, and that our hearts are so aligned with one another that we finish each other's sentences. um, We still say the same stuff. um, But even more than that, it's my hope that... um, the older that I get, and my hope for you is the older that you get, and the longer you walk with Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit, seeking God the Father, that you are more aligned with His heart and His will, that you look more like Him. That as you are growing in um, age and in stature, that you're also growing in a knowledge and understanding so much of God Himself that your hearts are aligned to his, your will is aligned to his, that you start to talk like him, act like him, be on mission like him. And that's our heart for prayer. That's our heart for prayer as a people, it's our heart for prayer in general. A life of prayer is the biggest indicator for any of us whether or not we are going to be like Jesus Christ himself. So the question is, will you? And will I? That's our hope.